3CR Breakfast acknowledges that we broadcast from the stolen lands of the Wandri and Boonurong peoples of the Kulin Nation. We pay respect to their elders, past and present, and acknowledge the continued resilience of First Nation peoples in the face of ongoing colonisation and settlement. We recognise sovereignty was never ceded and a treaty never signed. This is 3CR Breakfast. Alternative news, analysis and current affairs. Monday to Friday, 7am to 8.30am. Good morning. Morning, Ella. How are you? Yeah, very well. Haven't Um, seen you for two weeks, so it's it's nice to... uh, I saw you on (laughs) Zoom last week. Yes, that's right. It was kind of nice having our... um, team debrief after the show but on zoom yeah that didn't was miss fun. it <laughs> how have you been yeah well still i'm um, just about settled into my new place as i said last week i've been um moving house but i'm just about out i had a um a couple of weeks to do it because the next person coming to my new place uh couldn't move until yeah the end of the week this week that um, always makes it a bit easier yeah you would think that but I think it's lulled <laughs> me into a false sense of security I've just moved very slow and suddenly I still um go back and see there's still things there I wonder how is that possible <laughs> oh, the last pot plant or the <laughs> yes um and the charger in the, um, <laughs> the wall <laughs> yeah that's right I'm making um lots of posts of um on uh, the local Facebook neighborhood network groups of uh, things I'm getting rid of. I keep making another post saying, oh, and this thing. (laughs) (laughs) And how many sleeps have you had in your new place? Oh, I think about eight now or seven. Um, I'm losing track now. But uh, yeah, I uh, got a new bed base on the weekend. So I'm I'm off the floor. That's always nice. (laughs) And And how's it going there? Is it a nice new environment. Yeah, yeah. No, I love it. Um, a very cute cat, lady, who I've fallen in love with. So, <laughs> unlike other cats, where you kind of need to play it cool or take your time, lady gives a lot very quickly. So that's my kind of cat. Ah, <laughs> uh, sounds very nice and cosy. Yeah. And how about you, Claudia? Uh, well, we have not been moving house. We were just home in our house, really, for our Easter break, taking it slowly. We did some family things and some nice cooking. I did some walks, uh, quality chats, and that was about all. So we, I think we did the slow Easter this year. Yeah, yeah, mine was very much a slow one. I ate plenty of hot cross buns, but uh, other than that, it wasn't very traditional. <laughs> and we did manage to find some ethical chocolate. So I had everyone on notice after my interview last week, and um, I managed to source a chocolate shop at South Melbourne Market that... Um, actually sources their cocoa from the Pacific, which was actually really nice to support the Pacific nations. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, has a sustainable, traceable cocoa chain. So, yeah. Nice. Yeah, I think that's um, ethical brands in general are something we should do more on on the show. Um, on the weekend, my mum was asking me, how, what's the app you used to use for finding ethical brands? I think it's one of those things where people want to do the right thing, but it's hard to get the information a lot of the time. And, and when I, you go to shops or buy things, you're kind of that's right time to research. So yeah, and I also think it's helpful in terms of changing the mindset because you go into big supermarkets and there is so much chocolate at very affordable prices, um, and it, you know it's really tempting just to 
fill up the, <laughs> the yeah. trolley with whatever's on special, whatever looks the biggest and brightest. Um, so, yeah, I, I was preaching that it was quality over quantity. Definitely. Which is actually healthier as well. Yes. Yeah, good for moderation as well. <laughs> Did help um, that the children were a little bit older now and we didn't do traditional Easter hunts and things like that, which, um, yeah, you, I don't know how you would do that with ethical chocolate, but maybe you have to just introduce your children very slowly to that, that concept <laughs> or yeah, <laughs> sprinkle other things around the garden. Yeah, children aren't great with moderation. so. <laughs> <laughs> Um, but yeah, definitely. And I think um, there's so much information, it's hard to do your research. So when someone's done it for you, it makes it a lot easier. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, that was really helpful. So yes. Ah, excellent. And what have we got on for the show today? Yeah, so our co-host Jacob is um, enjoying a well-earned break in Tasmania, but we are going to hear a bit from them. Um, so first up, we're going to listen to a segment they originally did uh, for Trans Day of Audibility on Queering the Air. Um, And this is about homelessness. Uh, So homelessness remains an ongoing challenge for trans people in Australia, with TransHub reporting that one in five trans people have experienced homelessness at some point in their lives. Um, The issue is complex. Homelessness not only looks like rough sleeping, it also encapsulates people living in temporary or crisis accommodation and people living in, in unsafe dwellings. So it begs the question, how can we create a safer society to protect our community? So Jacob spoke with uh, homelessness organisation 2010 um, and spoke to Terence Humphreys and Jade Winter to find out more. So it'll be good to listen to that one. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and then at around 7.30, we're going to hear more about the Dying to Know campaign. So this is a campaign which is looking to open up the conversation about death and dying and end-of-life care and try and break down and remove some of that discomfort and fear that I think a lot of us um, get when talking about the topic. It's something that's, yeah, everyone will experience, and it's um, in some ways all around us, but I think we get really uncomfortable and tend to avoid the topic, um, which doesn't make it any easier. (laughs) Mm, Definitely something that can invoke fear or the sense of the unknown and yeah, ward it off, um, yeah, rather than confront it, but... I'll be very interested to hear what your guest has to say. Yeah, and yep, we're going to be speaking with Susan Goldie, um, who's part of the Groundswell Project, who are putting on this campaign, and she's the National Lead End of Life Strategy. Mm, Sounds really interesting. Well, we have a few arts uh, segments to wrap up the show. At 10 to 8, we'll be talking to Ripley Kavara who is the creative director of Pacifica and Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander multidisciplinary arts event called We Take Back Our Mother Tongues. And this event's going to be on in a couple of weeks, first weekend of May, and it centres on black, queer and transgender voices. And it sounds very exciting, so we're going to hear all about that. Excellent. And that will be followed by an interview with Lisa Welp who is a uh, multi-disciplinary artist as well, but she works with visual art and textiles. Uh, She's a mixed cultural first peoples person. And the thing she's going to talk to us about today is very intriguing. Her current work is a public roadside artwork called Journeyed, and it 
looks at the road sign as a symbol and in terms of what that means about authority and agency to navigate land. So that'll be a really interesting discussion. I can't wait to speak to her. Yeah, definitely. All right, can't wait. Uh, In the meantime, let's ease into the morning with a song. Uh, This has got to let go from the bees.
Goongaroo Environment Centre is a grassroots community organisation campaigning for East Gippsland's precious forests. For over 15 years, we've been using direct action, citizen science and community engagement to stop the continued logging of precious native forests and threatened species habitat. After this summer's terrible bushfires, there's an even greater urgency to protect what remains, and the Victorian government haven't ruled out plans to log the small fragments of unburnt forests and so-called salvage log in burnt areas. It's now so important that forests and wildlife are protected so they can recover. Head to gecko.org.au to keep updated with the latest news and to get involved. Gecko acknowledges the logging is happening on the stolen lands of the Gunnakurnai and Bidwell and the Naro people and that sovereignty was never ceded. A 3CR supporter. Earth Greetings have been making sustainable beautiful since 2003. Their 100% recycled cards, plastic-free stationery and earth-friendly gifts are made in Australia with the lightest possible planetary footprint. Shop online at earthgreetings.com.au or at one of over 500 stockists Australia-wide. Earth Greetings is a 3CR supporter. You're listening to 3CR Breakfast and before the break we heard the bees worth got to let go. And now we're going to hear a little from Jacob Gamble, um, our co-host who's away. We're actually going to listen to a segment they did on queering the air for Trans Day of Audibility. Um, so this one was originally recorded at the end of last month. And up next I'm going to be talking to two individuals from 2010, which if you didn't know is a homelessness organisation that works to help out people uh, who are LGBTQIA plus and experiencing homelessness. So let's talk a bit about why this is a big issue for trans people. It remains an ongoing challenge uh, for the trans community, with TransHub reporting that one in five trans people have experienced homelessness at some point in their lives. And the issue is complex. So homelessness doesn't just mean sleeping rough. It also encapsulates people living in temporary or crisis accommodation and people living in unsafe dwelling, dwellings. Sorry. And it begs the question, how can we create a safer society to protect our communities? So I'm joined now by Terence Humphreys and Jade Hunter from 2010. Terence and Jade, welcome to the program. Hi, Thank you, Jacob. It's a pleasure. Now, Terence, why is homelessness such a prominent issue for trans people and LGBTQIA plus people in Australia? Well, um, as a cis person, Jacob, I can't answer from personal experience or speak for the trans and gender diverse communities, but I can certainly answer from what we know at 2010 about the young people that we deal with. And we know that this isn't a simple issue. It's quite multifaceted and there needs to be a lot more research to help us have a, a much deeper understanding. But as you mentioned with research, um, a piece of research from a couple of years ago called Writing Themselves in Four about young people who are LGBTIQA plus and their health and wellbeing um, had even higher statistics for trans people who are young people. So 45% of trans men and 37.9% of trans women who uh, participated in that study, experienced homelessness in their lifetime. And we know that part of that can be mental health issues, rejection from family, family violence um, and financial stress. 
But at the core of it, a lot of the issues boil down to some general ignorance and fear in the general public. Partly that's caused through things like um, being trans being a current political football and current media attacks, particularly on trans children. And all of that means that parents and caregivers can often be ill-equipped um, to support their child or young person. Um, and coming out can be really terrifying for those young people as well. And that fear of rejected rejection or a delayed acceptance uh, has a really major impact on them. Uh, and all of that is then exacerbated by the fact that we have very limited culturally responsive services and practitioners in this country, uh, particularly, uh, I, I guess I'm speaking from New South Wales, uh, limited funding for specialist services, which means that often the services that do have that knowledge tend to be city-centric, city um, and also really poor data collection, whether that's from the census or homelessness data or academic research. Mm, so many complex factors that, that go into this <laughs> issue. And you yeah. touched upon before how there's not really a lot of specialist services that provide support um, for the community. So I'm curious to hear your answer to this. How does the housing sector's response measure up? And what are some of the stories we've heard about how trans people have been treated by housing providers? Yeah, look, it's really inconsistent state by state. So housing is funded at a state level. And in New South Wales, um, we've been fortunate enough to have funding for LGBTIQA plus young people and for transgender adults for a number of years, not just for 2010, but other services. Um, but it's still, it, it's still always the demand is outweighs the funding. And uh, I guess we've been maybe luckier than some other states and territories, but still that demand is, is never met by that funding. And in New South Wales, homelessness is uh, a, what's called a Premier's priority. Um, and LGBTIQ young people are a priority and certainly within that trans and gender diverse uh, children and young people are also um, a priority as well. But uh, for years, 2010 has advocated for more inclusive data collection in the homelessness sector. And we had a bit of success a couple of years ago um, and we're also funded to deliver some inclusivity training um, that we run called PRISM across New South Wales homelessness sector to support that new, more inclusive data collection and culturally appropriate service deliveries. Um, but that, that really needs to be every worker in every industry and sector right across the country, like starting from from undergraduate level so that people are coming into the workplace equipped to be able to work uh, respectfully and inclusively with trans and gender diverse young people. Mm. And we've had, you know, lots of stories over the years from young people about their experiences in mainstream homelessness services and certainly we've seen marked improvements in, in the last five to ten years but there's still a long way to go and Often those stories are about discrimination, being misgendered, placed in accommodation um, that's based on an assumed gender rather than the person's affirmed gender. Uh, and lots of services don't have uh, options for people uh, to go into, particularly like they won't have non-binary sleeping, toilet or bathroom options. And so people are forced to, to stay or to use services that 
don't actually uh, match their gender at all. Uh, so there's lots that needs to continue happening um, to improve that. And trans and gender diverse people and community-led organisations should really be at the forefront of that. Mm, there's a, a lot of great work happening, but as you said, there's still quite a way to go. And Jade, what difference does providing a safe and supportive space to trans and gender diverse people make? Um, I would say it's the difference between thriving and surviving. Um, Often I see young people come into our service and they're shy, quiet, unsure of themselves and the environment. And then I watch them walk away, um, vibrant, talkative, Others, I've seen other clients come in and um, they get changed into clothes that match their gender expression. And the difference between the person that walks in and the person that walks out of the, the bathroom is like night and day. It, the freedom to express themselves, it, it gives them power. It, it helps build them up. And so creating that network of um, peers and support environment plays an essential role in their health and well-being, both physically and mentally. Mm, it's, it's such a powerful story you told there of people going in um, as a totally different person to the, the person that they are coming out just because they've had access to something supportive and affirming. And Terence, we know that discrimination and social isolation are major factors that drive homelessness. What needs to be done by the community to create a safer society particularly for groups that are facing other forms of marginalisation as well, such as trans people who may live regionally uh, or First Nations trans people? Yeah, I think at the core of it, our our current dominant culture in this country pathologises, discriminates and harms trans and gender diverse children, young people and adults. Um, And we need to change that culture to one that supports and celebrates them, um, we need to ensure that we have those community-led specialist organisations who are properly funded and that if, we're, if people access support through mainstream services, that those services and the workers there are culturally safe, they're welcoming and effective. Um, part of that would mean addressing that kind of city-centric nature of our services and the way that there's not enough funding sometimes, and the way that services are almost pitched against each other for, for you know, the small amount of funding that is there. Um, but I think also being um, savvier about the way that we deliver those services, and I suppose that's the silver lining of, of the COVID-19 situation and lockdown, was that many services got much better at, you know, providing support services online or telehealth. Mm. We want to ensure that, you know, all those services, particularly those mainstream services, are culturally safe and appropriate because often they're easier for people to access geographically. But realistically, at the heart of it, we need every single worker in every sector, but particularly homelessness, education, mental health, the youth sector, all of those Sectors need workers that have been trained and that they have the ability to provide, or, or that they have rather, a nuanced and, and uh, contemporary understanding of uh, trans and gender diverse children, young people, and adults, so that they're better able to provide the appropriate care to them 
but also to the parents and caregivers as well. Um, and that would that would extend, I suppose, to the workplace and making sure that workplaces are equipped um, to be able to have affirmative, uh, trans-affirmative recruitment strategies so that more trans and gender diverse people are employed across all those sectors wherever possible. Mm-hmm. Um, and I guess we need to close those gaps, you know, that I mentioned at the start uh, in our understanding of trans and gender homeless, uh, transgender and gender diverse homelessness um, to get a more um, detailed understanding for, you know, for all those intersecting identities and aspects of ourselves, like those with a disability, uh, those with cognitive physical disabilities or um, asylum seekers, religious minority groups, people from regional remote areas, um, trans and gender diverse people that have been incarcerated or are exiting prison, the elderly, uh, people who were sex workers, neurodiverse, living with HIV, or, or targets of violence. Like, we just don't have enough information and data to, to really have the whole picture when it comes to providing appropriate care for those people. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it definitely requires such a, a holistic response, as you were saying, yeah. not only from a, a community level, but training every service that interacts with, with trans and gender diverse people. And Jade, how important do you think it is um, to trans and gender diverse young people that we have positive representation such as Trans Day of Visibility, which is coming up this Thursday on the 31st? Um, I think it's incredibly important. Uh, key reason would be to, to fight back that narrative that has been and still is driven in the media. It's one that we see that is filled with misinformation, hate, bigotry. Uh, and even the times when it's not, we, even the times where it's, it, it's meant to be positive and, and helpful, it, the narrative is, is centred on our experience as an experience of pain and suffering rather than the joy that comes from uh, being yourself and... Sorry, that's my dog... Um, and learning to love yourself. Mm. I think uh, young people are already aware of the challenges that um, that, are, that can be faced when being trans and gender diverse, but what I really want them to see and hear and feel is the, the love, pride and community that comes with it as well. It's definitely powerful to see trans joy um, elevated, isn't it? It really is. It's it's a, it's a shift in focus that I want to advocate for. I want to present, and I want to see. I, I, I don't. I, of course, there are challenges that we, we face, and there are issues which are documented that need to be tackled. But I want I want our youth to kind of be ignorant, but not ignorant of it. I want them to grasp in privilege. I want them to not know how, how good they, they, they have to break down these barriers. And I want them to see the, the positive side of things. And because that, because that is also a big part of it. It's, it's, you know, coming out as trans or gender diverse meaning, means that you, you know yourself a little more than you did before. And that's what's celebrating. Mm. I couldn't agree more. And 
Terence, we will have to wrap up in a couple of minutes. So I'll just ask this last question quickly. With a federal election coming up this year, if you had one hope for government reforms to help address this issue, what would they be? Wow, that's a tall order. And I can't speak for all trans people, but my hope personally would be to see um, legislation, consistent legislation that places the voices of trans and gender diverse people at the forefront for funding for community-led and specialist organisations, particularly in health and homelessness, some improvement um, on on human rights for trans and gender diverse people, particularly in, for young people and children in educational settings, and an end to the public so-called debate about the human rights for trans and gender diverse communities. Um, and, you know, everyone should have access to affordable and sustainable housing. Absolutely. Please, let's bin this religious discrimination bill. I'm sick of the debates. I want it done. <laughs> We all are. Yeah. Well, Jade and Terence, it's been an absolute pleasure chatting to you this afternoon. Thank you so much, both of you, for coming on and sharing your thoughts on this. Thanks so much, Jacob. Thank Mm, you. And that was Jacob Gamble in a segment originally recorded for the Trans Day of Audibility, talking about homelessness. Now we're going to talk about a topic that a lot of us do our best to avoid death and dying. The Dying to Know campaign is seeking to change that and remove some of the fear or even just awkwardness that a lot of us feel by improving our death literacy. Not-for-profit The Groundswell Project Australia is calling on Australians to get get dead set around death and dying. And we're joined now by a national lead end-of-life strategy, Susan Goldie. Good morning, Susan. Thanks for joining us. Now, as a society, death is something that a lot of us aren't great at talking about. Um, And I have to confess, I think I'm one of them. When I was um, reading about this campaign yesterday, I was really interested to hear more. Um, But I realised as I was preparing last night, I felt a bit nervous. I think I was worried I'd say the wrong thing or not approach it right. Um, But it's really important. Um, And I was wondering if you could start by talking a bit about why it's so important we open up this conversation. Yeah, And I think we all feel uncertain about how to talk about dying and death, so you're certainly not alone. You're absolutely right. It is important that we get better at about death and dying. We're okay talking about other big life events like um, planning for a birth or for a wedding or for a special occasion. And yet that final special occasion, death is something we don't want to talk about, let alone plan about. So if we want to have the, have choice and control at end of life, that means we've got to plan and to plan well. We need to talk with the people in our lives who are going to help us enact that plan. Whether our dying is unexpected or whether it's expected, Thinking about what really matters to us in living well will help us make choices about how we want to die of noise. Can absolutely help. Oh, sorry, Susan, you're just breaking up a bit there. Could I get you to maybe move a bit closer to the phone? 
Hello, can you hear me now? Yeah, I think that sounds a bit better. Maybe if you could start okay, from the beginning. I'm, just, I'm sorry about that. Where would you like me to start? Uh, wonderful. That sounds much better now. Okay. Uh, so cool. I think we sorry. just missed the last sentence there. Um, so you're just talking about oh, okay. all the so, um, logistical aspects as well and making sure we can um, uh, honour someone's choices towards the end yes, of their life. Yes, honour someone's choices and um, planning and conversations with the people in our lives means that their distress, confusion, worry is going to be reduced at a terribly difficult time and people are going to be remembered in the way they want to be remembered and loved ones can grieve in the way they need to grieve. Absolutely, yeah. It sounds like it's as beneficial for the um, person at the end of their life as it is for um, the people they might be leaving behind. Absolutely, Ella. And um, can you tell us a bit more about this campaign, the Dying to Know campaign? Sure can. We are proud to be launching Dying to Know uh, Day campaign. We're in our 10th year now. And this year, as you mentioned, we are asking Australians to think about getting dead set. And what does that mean? It means overcoming those awkward moments you mentioned in the opening. And firstly, I think having a conversation with ourselves about what our values are, what really matters to us about living well and dying well. And that might be things like preserving my sense of humour, keeping hold of a sense of independence, being able to communicate with the people I love, and then thinking of, and then working out how to share what's important to me, what my values are, with the people around me who are going to help me at uh, the end of my life, particularly if I can no longer communicate my choices or advocate for myself. We're also asking Australians to get dead set by making some notes, writing things down. Sometimes that might mean flicking an email to somebody, writing down my favourite recipes, or it might mean um, undertaking some more formal records, some medical documents such as advanced care plans, which I can sit down and record with my GP. It might mean some legal documents such as choosing and documenting a substitute decision maker who can help to make sure that if I can't advocate for myself at end of life, my wishes will be respected because my substitute decision maker will enforce those decisions and those choices for me. We are also asking Australians to get dead set by thinking about how they'd like to be remembered and what kind of a send-off, simple, fancy, big, little, they would like so there's some of the actions, uh, Ella, we are asking Australians to take to get dead set in this year's Dying to Know campaign. Excellent. And yeah, I saw in the um, release you spoke about um, death literacy. Um, so are these some of the main elements of death literacy? Ella, they are. Death literacy is about having the knowledge, yes, having the knowledge to know what sorts of choices I might have around living and dying well, to understand some of the questions that I might have around 
how to record my personal legacy, how to make sure that my assets end up where I want them to end up, what sorts of choices I've got about my send-off, my um, funeral, my last rites, but also having the confidence and the compassion and the practical skills to have those conversations. And that's where Going to Know Day can give people lots of really practical guidance and advice about how to start that awkward conversation and where to go to find the people who can help you with all those actions. Excellent. And um, this campaign's running ahead of, yeah, the Dying to Know Day, which is on August 8th, I believe. That's um, right. But um, the Groundswell Project uh, works with people at the end of their life all year round. Um, and I saw you run a, a group uh uh, workshops, excuse workshops. me. <laughs> um, can you tell us about what kind of people come to your workshops? What sort of position are they in? Are they people who are struggling with the choice or are they people who have um, uh, come to terms with it a bit more by the time you see them? Yes, Ella, we have all of those people come and join one of our workshops. Sometimes we run workshops for health professionals and it's uh, has been surprising to me how many health professionals struggle with end-of-life conversations and understanding how to help their patients. Health professions, health professions are full of compassionate, wonderful people, but they find this tough. So sometimes our workshops are directed to health professionals. Sometimes, as you say, for people who perhaps are living with a life-limiting uh, illness or who had experienced a death in their family, perhaps not such a good death and would like to see it done differently next time. And people who have absolutely no idea where to begin. So we feel really honoured that people trust us to hold them in that pretty awkward space for a couple of hours and connect with us and let us introduce them to some simple information, some accessible resources and some ideas uh, to take away and have a go at even the simplest conversation. So we, we connect with Australians at all different stages. We connect with Australians who've got different cultural views about death and dying and it's really important to respect the widest range of cultural views. But we know two things, Ella. Firstly, that over 90% of Australians want to talk about death and dying. And we also know that people who come to our workshops feel better, feel, is liberated the word, feel confident, feel comfortable after they've had the workshop and after they've thought about how they might have a productive conversation about death and dying. Amazing. And um, I noticed there when you were earlier talking about um, becoming death literate, you spoke about a lot of practical things like writing lists and um, getting yourself prepared. Um, and ahead of the interview today, I was um, reading about something called the Coffin Club, some uh, groups where people mm. get together and uh, some people even make their own coffin, which maybe sounds a bit morbid to some people. But I was um, wondering if it's actually quite helpful to have a practical task or something for people to do with their hands while they're still coming to grips and getting used to talking about it. I think that's a great suggestion, Ella. 
we encourage people to do what feels comfortable for them. And sometimes that might be quietly thinking alone about what what you want to do and how you want to do it. Sometimes it's about getting the whole family together and there's a lovely video about what that can look like on um, our website, which is dyingtoknowday.com. Sometimes, you're right, it can be very practical and certainly the Coffin Club is a great example. I have a very dear friend whose dad was a member of a Coffin Club in Tasmania and his coffin was used as a bookshelf for many, many years and when he died, the shelves, the books were taken out the shelves were taken out and he was put in and the family felt as if he was, lit- well, he was literally going out with part of the furniture. So practical activities can absolutely help with both meaning and grieving. Yeah. And, um, yeah, I was reflecting back when I was reading about this when one of my grandparents was at the end of his life and I remembered... Um, even and it was um, like the majority of people we um, it was expected and we knew it, but even then we kind of talked about everything except for death. I think um, people do just get really uncomfortable about it, even when it's right there. Um, why do you think people are so uncomfortable talking about death? Yes, it's uh, it's I think the most important question: Why are we so uncomfortable? Ella, I think for many of us, there are two aspects to that. Um, they, they both stem from fear, and we are all understandably frightened about that last big event. But I think people experience um, embarrassment and worry that I'm going to get upset I'm going to make someone else cry. I'm going to cry. This is going to be such a horrible way to spend an hour or I'm going to ruin the family's day. I think it it often comes down to that fear that I won't be able to manage my emotions because dying and death are such emotional topics. We encourage people to face their fears and I'm not for a moment suggesting that death shouldn't be fearful. It is a frightening area of our lives. But sharing the emotion um, and naming our fears can really help people deal with them and then have the conversation. I did a, one of our workshops recently with a group of staff members and then I did a follow-up session a couple of weeks later to say, so how did you feel about that? And within five minutes, everybody in the room was laughing and sharing anecdotes because everyone had gone away and had um, taken this strange conversation back into their own families with some, some worry, some trepidation. But everybody said it was fantastic. After we all got over the awkwardness, it felt good. It didn't feel scary anymore. Yeah, I imagine there'd be a, a sense of relief or release. Um, and yeah, I think people get this uh, sense of helplessness. Um, and while we might not be able to um, help, well, we can't help when it comes to death, we can help with all the things around it. So I think it's really important. 
Um, now, we are running out of time, but just quickly, um, for people who want to access some of your resources or get involved, where can they find these? Ella, thank you. Our website is dyingtoknowday.com and we would love um, everybody to have a look. Feel free to follow our simple steps about getting dead set. Lots and lots of links to, we hope, very practical resources. And please, if you are thinking of getting involved with Dying to Know Day on the 8th of August, we would love to help you do that. We've got lots of ideas about uh, everything from a cup of tea with your neighbour at the kitchen table through to um, an event in a park or at your workplace. And we are hoping that Australians everywhere will mark Dying to Know Day, get involved in Dying to Know Day and tell us Tell us your stories so we can really see how we can all together make a difference. Excellent. All right. Thank you so much for joining us this morning, Susan. Ella, thank you so much for having us. Enjoy the rest of your day. You too. Bye-bye now. Bye. And that was Susan Goldie, a national lead end-of-life strategy uh, from the Groundswell Project Australia. Uh, you're listening to 3CR Breakfast and we'll be back with you shortly. Do you have a few children's picture books or footy boots that your kids have outgrown but want to find them a loving home? Well, drop them in at 3CR and put them in the Books and Boots bin. Books and Boots regularly sends pre-loved children's picture books and sports footwear to remote and regional First Nations communities and children across the country. Contact us at Books and Boots or go to the website www.booksandboots.org.au We love a good book. To hear us slam the atomic industry, then tune into the radioactive show on 3CR 10 a.m. Saturdays. Taken by the wealthy man 
I guess she's trying to understand Oh, why? Oh, why? Please tell me why Do the children cry? by the children's needs in a world of so much greed when love can't buy a feed she can't even buy her shoes now she's got the blues never any good news this story is sad but true oh why Tell me why do the children cry? Oh, why? Oh, why? Please tell me why do the children cry? It's the Leroy Curry. truth and lies as she looks at it is gone by oh how it makes her cry oh why oh why please tell me to show broad community support. Show your support for walking and cycling in the city of Yarra by appearing as a champion on the Streets Alive website, representing your local street, neighbourhood or school. It's fast, free and simple. Learn more at streets-alive-yarra.org. A 3CR supporter. Common Social Change Library is an online collection of educational resources for those campaigning for social change. It collects, curates and distributes the key lessons and resources of progressive movements around Australia and across the globe. The library includes over 500 resources covering campaign strategy, community organising, activist history, 
digital campaigning, diversity and inclusion, and much, much more. It's free to access the library, so check out the collection at www.commonslibrary.org. Common Social Change Library is a 3CR supporter. You're listening to 3CR Breakfast, and before the break we heard Kutcher Edwards with Why. Thank you, Ella. And from uh, coming to terms with the end of life, we're now going to move into some acts of living. So we're going to be talking to Ripley Kavara, who is the creative director of the Pacifica and Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander multidisciplinary arts event called We Take Back Our Mother Tongues. The event centres on black, queer and transgender voices and it's coming to Melbourne on May 6th and 7th. It's billed as a spellbinding evening of queer Pacifica and First Nations music installation and connection featuring live music, DJ sets, video projections and sculptural installations. And joining us now is Ripley Kavara, the creative director. Good morning, Ripley. Good morning. How's it going? We're going very well here. How are you going? I am going okay. I'm bright and early. <laughs> we always appreciate a breakfast guest. <laughs> yeah, Wednesday breakfast does that. Um, thanks for joining us. And tell us about this event. It sounds amazing. I read somewhere it's it's going to have a club-like atmosphere, so it sounds really electric. Yeah, um, it's basically um, a, yeah a collaboration of many different um, artists um, and technical production crew from all kind of walks of life um, and the way that I've con- kind of gone about curating it has been to create a as an immersive environment as possible. So that means visually, um, you know, musically, um, lighting, um, and to really bring in artists to create that space. Um, And, yeah, it's been a real pleasure and a joy to be able to um, dream quite big with um, with this performance. Um, and slowly kind of, um, yeah, build, um, you know, where in, uh, the visual artist Mossy is just, um, has just bumped in yesterday and she's kind of building these large sculptures that will be a part of the audience will be able to walk around and, and quite close to and engage with as well as obviously being, um, listening to the musical performances. So, yeah, it's a very immersive um, and sort of special environment that, yeah, we're creating. And the title, uh, We Take Back Our Mother Tongues, is a really powerful and evocative uh, entree to the event. Can you tell us about the meaning behind the name and, and what sort of inspired you to piece together the project? Yeah, um, that particular title is a lyric from one of our songs, um, and it was written by the artist Bella Waru, 
um, who is a Māori um, musician and movement maker. Um, Bella and I were involved in collaborating um, in kind of working um, on a musical acknowledgement to country um, that we then um, invited um, black artist mob to collaborate on with us. Um, but we kind of wrote the first musical um, piece and then we invited the artist Stacey Piper and Kaliani Mumtaz to work with us um, in kind of building it as a song but also with Stacey, who's Wurundjeri, um, to acknowledge the land here, where a lot of the artists are based on. Um, yeah, so we kind of... Um, I really took inspiration from Bella's lyric, and I thought, what a incredible title, um, and something that would kind of symbolise this reclamation um, and I guess this way of reconnecting with um, with yourself and with your ancestry and your history um, and something that's quite hard to do I think in the, in the way that we're living right now um, and really a one of the priorities of this project is making that space accessible for the artists. Yeah. And um, you're working with a lot of different artists and... Uh... using a lot of different mediums. Um, can you tell us a bit more about this process of curation and also collaboration? Did you find things really developed and changed as you started working together? Yeah, things changed heaps. I, like, when I first engaged with Bella, for example, I was like, oh, I just want you to, like, make this video. And then we ended up hanging out and in a studio, in my studio, and recording a song together. So... Things have changed a lot, mm -hmm. um, really organically, and I think in the way they're meant to. Um, so many people in the collective are just so widely talented and interesting and wise, kind of beyond their years. Um, so I feel like I'm constantly learning and 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 shifting as a kid curator, I guess, and director to help bring all of that to light. Um, yeah, definitely challenging sometimes because working with a big collective of, we have almost 20 different people on our books and who we kind of work with, um, definitely challenging through COVID because um, a lot of our work is very in-person, face-to-face kind of connection-based work. Um, so, yeah, COVID kind of put a massive disruption into that. Um, and we've just, in the last, I guess, four or five months, been able to reconnect. Um, and 
hold that creative space again. Um, yeah, but I think in terms of yeah, directing, it's really just it's just about it's about looking at the flow of energy and and kind of allowing it to happen when it needs to, but also kind of providing the structure and the guidelines and the um, the artist to respond to. So it can be really fun and it can also be like, yeah, really challenging. But it's um, I think when all the artists come together in a room, it it all makes sense. I was wondering, Ripley, when you were talking about that sort of collaborative process, putting aside the creative exchange that would have uh, been um, part of that, I just wondered about the cultural exchange and, and what that experience was like for you and the other um, performers and collaborators in terms of learning about each other's stories and histories and families and countries and lands and all of that rich ancestry um, that comes as part of each of you as individuals and then you come to share that and how that infused the both the creative process but also um, how you learnt from that and, and enjoyed that. Yeah, that's a great question. Um, we've, I think we've, we have all learnt a lot um, through the process of coming together in this collective, um, more than I think I ever dreamed of, really, um, in terms of you know the cultural backgrounds of the artists we have. Um, West Papuan artists, we have um, Torres Strait Islander, um, Tongan, Samoan, um, Fijian. Um, you know, we have instrumentalists who are Ganai Kurnai and Yoda Yoda. We have um, Kaliana who's Tarawoi. We have, like, so many different um, people with these, like, very individual rich kind of history and, like, lineages in their, um, in their family. And, yeah, I think even just by sitting around you know, a fire or, and, and, and kind of talking and yarning. Um, there has been so much learning within, you know, um, our kind of collective experience. Um, and, you know, there's been opportunities to see similarities as well between our cultures, but also on the you know, the differences and why there are differences and how that's important, um, that we're not all kind of homogenised. Um, and it's been a really amazing space, I think, for me, wanting to open up this conversation with Aboriginal artists and going, how do we work together in a way that is really um, respectful and consensual and trying to also rewrite the way that, you know, imagining how would we do this, you know, before colonisation? What would be the respectful way for artists who were visited or, you know, had settled on 
so that's that has like yeah there's just been hours and hours and hours of conversation around around those kind of cultural spaces and practices um and yeah it's been a really incredible opportunity to connect in that way and i think you know, people in the collective have found out their cousins and they're related. You know, people can share language. Some people have more access to language than other people, so sharing language um, that's really, really, really powerful for artists. So, yeah. And what excites you most about putting this on? Have you got a, a favourite artist that you're particularly looking forward to seeing or a particular aspect of the event? Um, I think just the impact on our community. Um, there's people coming to the event who we've, we've put a lot of money uh, and resources behind and funding really behind um, trying to improve our accessibility for our event. So we're offering um, a social story for people who are neurodiverse and an audio description service for people who have low vision or who are blind um, to engage in the event to be described like a visual, you know, installation, but also the performance. Um, we have people coming who are at the end of their life, you know, and wanting to see, um, wanting to see this performance. So. That's kind of, I think that that's really powerful. And I, um, you know, it's going to be different. You know, we've all changed since COVID. But I think the fact that we're doing it at all is kind of the most exciting thing for me. And also to share what the collective has been working on um, with the community. And, and yeah, to, and to bring, to try and bring more of our community into those performance spaces and make, And where can uh, one go to buy tickets? Um, one can go to the Arts House website. Sorry, I'm so bad at putting this thing. Let me look it up. <laughs> I think I've www.artshouse.com.au. Is that the one? Yeah, that's the one. And, um, yeah, you'll see it. We, we take back them over time. Um, yeah, follow the link through and there's ticket um, sale. There's also plastic for sale for Mob. And, yeah. And you mentioned um, some of the accessibility uh, resources such as Social Story for neurodiverse um, visitors and um, other resources. Are they available on that website or somewhere they else? They will be. They will be available the week of the performance. Okay. Stay tuned. There's some information up there now. Um, and the, the audio description um, service will also be available as a ticket. Fantastic. Um, yeah. Thank you so much for sharing um, that with us. It, it sounds really, really innovative and um, just what our Melbourne needs, a, a very mixed, inclusive, vibrant cultural event. Um, Thank you.
So uh, congratulations and um, encourage our listeners to grab a ticket and get along. That was Ripley Kavara, Creative Director of We Take Back Our Mother Tongues, and that's running on May the 6th and May 7th at Arts House, the North Melbourne Town Hall. What a great Mother's Day present. That would be the Mother's Day weekend. You can get the tickets at www.artshouse.com.au. Excellent. All right. And now let's take a break with a song from Gal Costa. We'll be back with you shortly. in Brazil and wiping off the eggshells in Moorabbin. Fascism's on the march and we say, yeah, nah. Yena Passaran is a new weekly program on 3CR dedicated to tracking this rise in Australia, Aotearoa and all around our increasingly warm little globe. Every Thursday at 4.30pm we'll be talking to writers and fighters about some angry blighters. Brothers, sisters, we don't need 
get your copy of 3CR's magnificent book. It's a stunning history of the people, programs and issues at this station since 1976. On sale now for the amazing price of just $20. Pick one up at the station or jump online and place your order. Radical Radio, celebrating 40 years of 3CR. On sale now for $20. You're listening to 3CR Breakfast. Um, before the break, we heard Gal Costa with Pontus de Lutz. Thank you, Ella. So we've been hearing about performative arts event this morning, and now we're going to go to a visual art event. Our final guest is a mixed cultural First Peoples artist who uses a variety of mediums and techniques to express herself and her connections with land, family and story. Her current work is a public roadside artwork called Journeyed. The work invites contemplation of the significance of the ubiquitous road sign, prompting questions about authority and agency in land ownership and navigation. Joining us now to talk about this work is the artist herself, Lisa Welp. Good morning, Lisa. Good morning. How are you? Very well. Lovely to have you with us on 3CR Wednesday Breakfast. Thank you for having me. Before we begin, can you give our listeners an image of the scale of this work and where it is situated? Um, It's a very, very big billboard. Um, So I guess a a normal-sized billboard that would generally be used for advertising of some sort. So just to give the scale, um, it's in a fairly unassuming position too. I think, um, yeah, it's, you know, situated in an industrial area. And um, so, yeah, it's, it's, I think it's really lovely to see artwork in, in that space. It's, uh, yeah, quite unassuming. So it's located on a road in Mornington Peninsula down in Hastings, is that right? Yeah, correct, in Hastings, yes. Well, there you go for anyone that's still on the road uh, for school holidays. There's uh, something there to check out and we're going to hear all about it. Now, it's a fascinating uh, premise for this artwork, but I'm really intrigued to, to know what the genesis for the project was and what came first, the ideas or the art form? Um, I think it was a little bit of both, really. Um, So I've just completed my master's at BCA, and this was a part of my graduate work. It was an extension of my graduate work, I should say. It's part of a series that is an ongoing series. So originally it started as um, experimenting with some printmaking techniques at the VCA uh, printmaking department, and and then from there I kind of created this collage. So I ripped up these prints and then created my own um, sign, which I was very inspired by a sharp deviation sign, which is a black and white sign. Like um, everybody would probably would have seen it. It's got like arrows. I think there's a diamond in the middle and then there's arrows. So it was really inspired from that. And then um, from from that print, a certain section was taken from it and then blown up into big screens um, under the guidance of Stuart Bruss, Russell and Danica from um, Spacecraft in Footscray. So, and then it's kind of grown from there. And um, um, yeah, just using a bit of an experimental printmaking technique, which was really exciting to play with. 
So tell us about the ideas. Um, what were you thinking about when you created a work around um, the symbol or medium of a, a, a street sign? Mm, I think it, it's something that's really been playing around in my thoughts for some time. And last year um, I started a, a jewellery making. It was... No, I don't even think it was last year. It was <laughs> the time's kind of blurred, but um, yeah, I did a jewellery making workshop in conjunction with um, the Koori Heritage Trust and RMIT and um, the National Gallery of Victoria, and it was a gold and silversmithing course. So um, basically, we're creating jewellery alongside with eleven other Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander artists. And I think the medium that really stood out to me to use was the idea of using street signs. So that's where it kind of began. That was the yeah, the, the whole start of it, and then it kind of grew from there. But I think um, the one thing that really stood out to me was, you know, these signs that have kind of been imposed in landscapes and, um, you know, the idea of telling telling us which way to go or where not to go and... Um, and I, I think it was something that really kind of came to my forefront on travels as well and going to um, places where there was restricted areas and and seeing that, um, you know, First Peoples weren't able to kind of go on their land. And, you know, that really came about from um, being with Ioani Skeff and, you know, on her country. She's a Gugutha Nukunu woman in, from South Australia. So that was really... Prevalent there, you know, just seeing um, that, you know, there was a lot of restricted places for her people. So, you know, it really pushed my thoughts forward even more so when I started collecting road signs, um, you know, ones that had fallen or ones that had been discarded on the side of a freeway. or um, And then I started custom making my own signs with my own words on them, um, detailing, I guess, things that I was writing about within my uni degree as well so um and about my artwork so yeah that's kind of a, a bit of a <laughs> an idea how it's kind of started yeah yeah it's really interesting yesterday we when we were having a, a bit of a chat before um this morning's interview we were talking about the different um ways that signs um have meaning for different people and from a Westerner's perspective, I would see a road sign as being really helpful. I mean, I tend to get lost. I rely on them um, mm. and my maps and so forth. But you were sharing a completely different perspective. Can you talk about mm. what the signs sort of mean for you and, and perhaps some of the ways Australian First Nations people would, would navigate space and country um, mm. that don't use signs. Definitely. I, I guess looking in the historical um, colonial kind of setting, you know, I saw signs as being like Western markers of violence, you know. it's um, As I was saying before, you know, to be kept out of one's country or to be redirected from country or, you know, taken away or... So I think that's um, where that kind of idea really resonated mm. from. And, um, yeah, I think, you know, it's uh, interesting over, you know, looking back um, in history and, you know, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people had their own um, 
you know, not road signs per se, but, you know, they had their own laws. They had their own um, paths and, you know, just so to have something that's been foreign and, you know, to kind of be erected in, in your in your country and, you know, telling you which way to go and where not to go. And, yeah, I just, yeah, I think it just, um, yeah, it really sparked something in me and, um, yeah, I was just trying to kind of relay that. Yep, and you know, you look back in, you know, with Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people, they're, you know, they're markers of, of, um, you know, road signs, as I'm saying. But, um, you know, it was the stars, or it's, you know, it's, they had their own direction, they had their own way of getting where they needed to go, and they relied and listened to country, and, um, you know, they were guided. So, you know, to have these foreign things, <laughs> it kind of, um, yeah, it changes the direction, you know, and a lot of a lot of signs are really a one-way direction. It's a one way to do this or not to do this. So the whole series of what I was doing, which is included in the billboard, was about our way as opposed to one way. Mm, I love that. It's um, It really opens up a completely different way of thinking about this from a you know, for Westerners that would just, as I said, use a road sign as a very, um, you know, mm. clear direction of where to go and not really think about any of those those meanings that you've um, shared with us. Yeah. And we were also yeah. talking yesterday about the authority to place a road sign, which sort of vests in local authorities and so forth as being government um, agencies and how that also um, connects back with colonial institutions um, having that authority and taking agency away from other um, mm. people who have um, connections with the land. Mm. There's really quite a lot of layers there. Yeah, most definitely. I think my work is really quite layered. Um, yeah, it's there's, yeah, there's quite a lot in, in it generally. <laughs> but um, I think, you know, even with road signs, creating my own road signs, you know, the the idea of it is to kind of direct back to country, mm. direct back to family um, in our own way, you know, a redirected way. Are there any um, projects and initiatives that are working with that to in a more um, structured way, I suppose, to, you know, you do have signs about um, Aboriginal lands in a more general sense, you know, you're on Wurundjeri country or so forth. Um, are there more specific projects that are um, trying to re re-establish, for want of a better word, the original markers that you might have used or denoting um, places of significance and so forth? Yeah, it's an um, interesting question. I think um, I'm coming back as a creative and mm. I think that, um, you know, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander artists, artists in general, but you know, I'm referring to Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander artists, you know, that's a way for people to see and understand and to listen and to hear and to be observant and um, aware of what is happening around us. And, you know, I think it's an incredible platform to be able to speak about political things. And, you know, it's, 
you know, you, you can look at artwork, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander artwork, and, you know, it looks wonderful to look at, but they, are, you know, a lot pack a punch, you know, and it's really, um, yeah, it's, a, it's, it's acknowledgement and it's, um, it's, it's reference and it's an understanding to, you know, who we are and how we came to be here and, you know, the strength and the, and the resilience of, you know, our people before us that are able to, you know, lead us into a place to where we are now. So I really believe that people are becoming more open to mm. hearing these stories and to um, embrace them. So it's, yeah, I think artists are a forefront to be able to show and pave people to see this and, you know, to, to see a piece of artwork on, on a road sign at the side of a road, you know, that's I think that's absolutely brilliant, you know, for people that don't necessarily go into gallery spaces mm. or, you know, to be able to bring the gallery out onto the road and, you know, it, it evokes questions. It's, you know, it's like, you know, what is that? Or, you know, what isn't that? Or, you know, so it's, yeah, it's a very clever project what's been um, instigated. And the the fact, as you you say, that it's open um, out on the on the road, and one can sort of um, take their own time to view it and take it in, or see it yeah. multiple times, or from Correct. different vantage points. Um, it's not mm. confined, you know, in a in a small gallery space, and um, that sort of gives it room to to breathe and for different people to interpret it and and reflect. Yeah, definitely. Yep, it's true. So the billboard um, is on display at 2061, 2061 Frankston Flinders Road, Hastings on the Mornington yep. Peninsula. Um, so I'm presuming that you'd probably need a car to get there. Would that be right? Um, I would say so, yep. Um, don't ask me about public transport. I'm not good public <laughs> transport. <laughs> well, it looks like a very long road. Um, so, it's yeah. It's a good drive, but, though. It's lovely down that way. Yeah. Yeah. And um, so I think, yeah, we just encourage our listeners to go and have a look and park the car and sit and, and take it in. Have you got any clues um, in terms of decoding what you've, presented or is it very much um, something just to be experienced and interpreted by each person as they they come upon it? I think so. I think it's, I love that idea that people are able to look into it and see what they Mm. see. Um, You know, I have my own symbols that have been um, put into that road sign. So, uh, and I guess it's, it's a pulling apart and a putting back together Mm. again. So it's quite abstract in its, in its look. Um, yeah, there's definitely directional um, connections in there and there's lines that kind of connect us back to family and, and um, you know, there's elements of it that, um, you know, have reference to road and, um, yeah, yeah. Thank you so much for sharing um, this with us and um, for bringing such a interesting piece of, of artwork to um, Victorians. You're very welcome and thank you for having me. Our pleasure. Have a great day. You too. Thank you. That was artist Lisa Welp talking about Journeyed, a billboard that she has created and it's on display at 2061 
Frankston Flinders Road Hastings on the Mornington Peninsula and that's going to be on view until the 8th of May. So, um, yeah, check that one out if you're on the road in Mornington Peninsula. Yeah, yeah, I do head that way a little bit. So, yeah, I'm excited to check it out next road trip. Yeah, me too. (laughs) All right, and, yeah, that's our show for this morning. It's been a good mix of content. You did very well to segue from death to um, creative arts this morning, Claudia. Well, um, yeah, it was... um, nice to have that that balance and yeah nice for to have these events happening and um yeah the creative community getting out there again absolutely all right big thank you to our guests this morning and thanks for tuning in see you next week cheers earth greetings have been making sustainable beautiful since 2003 they're 100% recycled cards Plastic-free stationery and earth-friendly gifts are made in Australia with the lightest possible planetary footprint. Shop online at earthgreetings.com.au or at one of over 500 stockists Australia-wide. Earth Greetings is a 3CR supporter. 3CR Breakfast would like to thank the New International Bookshop, Melbourne's independent radical bookstore and venue, for their financial support of this program. You can find Nibs in the basement of Trades Hall in Victoria Street, Carlton. And while you're there, check out Radical Coffee, a worker-run cooperative cafe in the courtyard. Keep up to date with upcoming events at nibs.org.au.